Thank you, Adele. Thank you for that reading. Let's just pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us now from your word. Lord, may the verses that we have read, may the verses that we will discuss, Lord, stand out to us. May we hear your voice speaking to us. Lord, guide what is said, guide what is heard. And Lord, meet with us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. The title this morning is An Open Door from Patient Endurance. We're in our series on the church which overcomes, we shall overcome. Not just us here in West Belfast, but God's people all across the world, all across time, we shall overcome. We shall overcome against death, against all who oppose God, all who oppose his people. We shall overcome the the struggles and the trials of life. And we will enter into that blessedness of that new world, that new creation, where there will be no more sorrow or sickness or death any longer. And God himself will wipe away the tears from our eyes. We will overcome because God is powerful. He is guaranteed and he will make it happen. And yet, here and now, we need to be patient. We need to endure. And it's not easy sometimes. Endurance and patience, well, sometimes it's easy to be patient. Sometimes it's not so easy. There's one man, Don Young, wrote about his daughter. When her eldest daughter was old enough to understand what saving money was all about, my wife and I sat down with her and explained the value of money. We explained how you save some money each week, putting it in your piggy bank. When the piggy bank is full, you take the money out and deposit it in a bank so that it can give you interest. She seemed to understand and couldn't wait to open a savings account in her local bank. He wrote, I called the bank and told the manager our daughter was on the way to open her savings account and we would stop in later and sign the necessary papers. What a thrill. The manager himself of the bank welcomed her when we arrived. She handed over her savings and he gave her a receipt and thanked her for her business. But she wouldn't leave. She just stood there like she was waiting for something. Is there anything else I can help you with, he asked. Yes, she said. I want my interest. (laughs) She understood about saving But she didn't understand about the time scale, the patience that is needed. We're often very impatient. Patience is not something that naturally comes to us. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. Fifteen years ago, a survey of over a thousand people by Associated Press and Ipsos discovered that While waiting in line at an office or a shop, most people take an average of 17 minutes to lose their patience. On hold on the phone, most people lose their patience in nine minutes. People with lower income and less education are more patient than those with a college, a university education and a high income. 
Women lost their patience after waiting in line for about 18 minutes, but men lost it even quicker after about 15 minutes. I've known people who have, like one man, he was trying to get a can of drink out of a machine. He put his money in. In about three to four seconds, he banged the machine and he said, sometime this year will be nice. <laughs> he had no patience to wait five seconds for his can to come out of the machine. That happens in so many aspects of life. We are impatient. Sometimes we have a significant amount of patience. 15 minutes is a long time to, to be patient when we're waiting in line. But sometimes if we're waiting in a queue, it's not so bad if the sun's out, if it's warm or if we're chatting with somebody we know. But if it's cold, if it's raining, we're outside getting soaked, we haven't got an umbrella or even a coat. Or if there's an emergency situation where we can't wait, the situation demands action now. It's very different. We don't have as much patience. The church in Philadelphia, not Philadelphia in the USA, but Philadelphia in what is now Western Turkey. It was commended by the Lord for its patient endurance. This church is here in Western Turkey. It's the sixth of the seven churches that John is writing to, that the Lord is speaking to through John's letter. The Lord commends this church for its patient endurance. I know your works. You've kept my word and have not denied my name. You've kept my word about patient endurance. We're not exactly sure what word they kept, whether it was just the general word in God's word, that we ought to be patient people and we ought to endure, or whether there was a specific message that the Lord had previously given to the church, maybe a prophetic message through one of the prophets in the church, those with the gift of, of prophecy. It's a very different thing to be patient when the things are going well, and it's easy. But to be patient when you're suffering, when you're enduring hardship, it's not so easy. And yet this church in Philadelphia was patient under stress, under great endurance. He commends their patient endurance. While Jesus did not have anything wrong to say about two of these churches, this one in Philadelphia and also the other one in Smyrna, this is the one he commends the most. The church in Smyrna, it was it hadn't done anything wrong. But this church, the Lord commends it, it he positively commends it for their faithful endurance. In fact, Philadelphia, the church in Philadelphia was the only church that not only had endured up to that point, but would continue enduring for many, many years afterwards. Robert Murray McShane said in the, that in the 19th century, Philadelphia, with a population of 2,000 people, still had 800 professing Christians in its five churches. 
800 out of 2,000 people in the 1800s. That's a testimony to endurance. 17 or 18 centuries, that is endurance. Sadly, with the mass exodus of Greeks from the region in the early 20th century, there are hardly any believers left there now. But this church was faithful up until this point and would be faithful for many years afterwards. Its faithfulness was blessed for hundreds of years to come. The question is, but what did it endure patiently there? Well, just like the churches in Smyrna, Pergamum and Thyatira, Jesus describes the opponents of the church here as those from Satan's synagogue. He even calls them liars here. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. We can understand from this verse that unlike the Jews at Berea, unlike the Jews in the synagogue of Berea, where Paul and Silas had shared the gospel, and they sought the scriptures, they examined the scriptures to see, is Jesus really the Messiah, like Paul and Silas are saying? You can read that in Acts 17, verses 10 to 15. Unlike those Jews who had a commendable approach, the Jews here in Philadelphia opposed the gospel. Sadly, too many of them opposed the gospel in Paul's missionary journeys. Jews were well respected in society then. At least they were tolerated, having religious freedom and they, were, they had a certain level of protection from the Roman rulers as well. They were well established throughout the Roman Empire. In contrast to Christians, when, when the Christian church had not been under the protection of the Jewish religion, when the Christian church was seen to be something distinctly different, not the fulfilment of what the Jews were looking forward to, the fulfilment that Jesus is the Messiah they had been expecting. When they didn't accept the Messiah, then Christians had to become something different. They lost all the protections that they had in law and in the community. And yet, Jesus says that these these people say they are Jews, but they are not, he says. They've come from the tradition They can say that Abraham is their father naturally, according to the flesh. But they're not true Jews. Paul tells us in Romans 2 that a true Jew is one who who loves God, who worships God, who has had a change of heart. The old flesh is put away. They have a change of heart. They are born again by the Holy Spirit. Not simply somebody who can trace their lineage back to Abraham and so that's why the Lord says that they're not Jews really they're not descendants of Abraham according to the the promise even though they are according to the flesh they're like Paul before he had his Damascus Road experience 
very zealous for God, but mistaken. And there's a hint here that they believe themselves to be the true people of God, looking down at the Christians from what we read in this verse. They expect the Christians to come and bow at their feet, but instead the Lord will make them bow at the feet of the Christians. Bowing at the feet of others is not necessarily to be taken literally. It's a, it's a Middle Eastern metaphor for saying that, that they will know and respect and see that you're vindicated. Bowing at somebody's feet was what people used to have to do when they came before a king or a ruler. And they acknowledged that the ruler was in charge and that they had to serve them. The Jews bowing at the feet of the Christians means simply that they will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and that the Christians were right after all. Paul tells us that you know one day everyone will come and every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Not necessarily in reverence and, and out of faith and out of love for God. Not necessarily as believers. But God's enemies, all his enemies, will one day bow down before him. Before they're sadly condemned to eternal punishment for their sin. So, the hint here is that the the Jews will one day acknowledge that the Christians are God's people, that the Christians will be vindicated. And the Jews believe themselves to be loved by God, but instead they will see that it is the weak church of Christian believers who are loved by God instead. So in the midst of opposition, we can infer that This could be quite serious at times, this opposition. And yet the church persevered. It patiently endured. Jesus said in verse 8, I know your works and all the things you do before he commends them. I know all the things you do. You have little strength, yet you have obeyed my word and did not deny me. This church had little strength. It was weak. In a worldly sense, it was insignificant. But it was strong in the Lord. Our weakness does not necessarily mean we are going to be ineffective to the Lord. Our natural weakness is not something that should put us off. Being faithful to the Lord, doing things for the Lord, doing works for the Lord... We shouldn't look at our own ability or inability. We shouldn't look at our own strength or weakness. Instead, we should look to the Lord that he can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or think through the church, through his people. We should have faith. Not faith in our own strengths, but faith in the strength of our God, whom we have faith in. When a child is secure holding the, the hand of its, its mummy or daddy, it feels secure not simply because it, of how tight it can hold on to their mum or dad's hand. 
They feel secure by how tightly their mum or dad can hold onto their hand. Our security, our strength comes not from how strong our faith is, how strong we are ourselves even. It comes from how strong our God is, how strong the one whom we have faith in is. It seems that this church, even though it was small, it had little strength, it was weak, it was strong in the Lord. It seems that though they have learned what Paul says here in Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. And yet they were faithful even under pressure to deny, to deny Jesus. Possibly from the Jews. Maybe some of them have, had left the Jewish community, the synagogue. You obeyed my word and did not deny me. There seems to have been pressure for them to deny Jesus. And yet they didn't. They were faithful to him. This isn't necessarily the persecution that the Romans would come under or that the church would come under from the Romans at different points. But a local persecution, a local local opposition. And yet they were faithful to Christ. They did not deny him. They obeyed his word. That might have been a word to them to, to be faithful to him. We could ask ourselves... Are we enduring patiently? Are we being faithful to the Lord week after week when others might oppose us, when we find it difficult to do what we do, whether in family or at work or wherever, and do it faithfully to God without being compromised day after day, week after week? When others belittle our faith, when really they're not opposing us, they're, they're opposing God, but it's in it into our face. When others believe that of whatever religion or denomination, that they are the true church, the true people of God, and we are, well, verse 9 shows us here that eventually God will make it clear who his true followers are. And he has true followers in lots of different places, sometimes in places we would not expect. Do you know, on the judgment day when we see God, when, when, we're, when we end up at that wedding feast of the Lamb, that glorious day when all God's people from all generations, all parts of the world are joined together, I think there's going to be, as many people have said, Often there's going to be many surprises. Some people who we thought were upright Christians are not going to be there because they were walking in the flesh. They were, they were doing it in their own strength. They had not trusted in the Lord. They might appear to be godly, but like the Pharisees, it was only outward. And yet there are others, and I think there will be many, who will be like the thief on the cross. The last moment they turn to the Lord and many people might not even know. They appear to have lived an ungodly life and died in total opposition to God. 
But sometimes we just don't know what happens in those last moments on a hospital bed when they're on their own. But the sad thing is that there are many people who think that they're doing God's will. They think they're God's people. They will not be there. They're like Paul before he was following the Lord Jesus. Before his Damascus Road experience, he was persecuting the church, thinking he was doing God's will. There are far too many people like that, down through the centuries. But one day we will see who it is that really loves God and God, who God really loves. We will one day see who his people really are. That's the point here. We will one day see who are truly his people Whatever opposition we get for our faith, we ought to persevere, knowing that God knows. Even if people don't see, God sees. And he will reward our patient endurance. Not just our patience, but our patient endurance of whatever it is we have to face. Just like the church in Philadelphia, we ought to to have patient endurance personally and as a church as a fellowship and as a church across the world as well we ought to endure difficulties knowing that the Lord is in control the end is coming soon I am coming soon the Lord says and yet as a result of their faithfulness the Lord has presented them with an open door I know all the things you do and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. I have opened a door for you that no one can close, the Lord says. Those who have been faithful in little little things will be entrusted with a lot, the Lord tells us. And here he has opened a door for them. No one will be able to, to close it. Their weakness does not determine their effectiveness. Their faithfulness determines their effectiveness before the Lord. Their faithful endurance results in a door being opened which no one can close. What is this door? Well, we're not told. We can't be sure. We can't be certain. On the one hand, Jesus says, yes, well... If we look at the the New Living Translation, yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. Or, to use the ESV translation, there's a number of translations that uh, translate it, I am the door, not the gate. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the door. He is the way of salvation. And we bring that to ourselves. We appreciate it. We we find it. We own it. We experience it through faith in him. But it is he who is the door, he says. And yet, while Jesus describes himself as a door here, this door that he has opened seems to be separate to him. He talks about, I have opened a door. 
and if he was talking about himself, he he would have couched it differently. So it seems as though, even though Jesus describes himself as a door, this that isn't what he's meaning here. He describes about opening and shutting doors. In verse 7 we read, Write this letter to the angel or the pastor, the messenger of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. I think the New Living Translation gets it, the sense there, what he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. This isn't about a who, this is about a what. In the terms of being faithful to Christ, having a door open is is often spoken of by Paul in particular in terms of advancement of the gospel. At Corinth, he writes, there is a wide open door for a great work here, although many oppose me. He's talking about ministry, gospel ministry. He wrote to the church in Colossae, Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. He looks for a door to speak about this plan, as we read it in other translations. Or having been on his first missionary journey and coming back to Antioch, to the church at Antioch, who had sent them out. Upon arriving at Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles too. Many commentators conclude that the door that Jesus is opening here, that no one will be able to shut, is a ministry door, a door for the gospel. Despite the opposition, people will become believers through their witness, through their preaching, through their testimony, through their evangelism. This will have a significant impact. The church is not going to simply die away. Even though they were weak, they will have a great impact on the city. That's so encouraging that the impact of a church is not determined by its worldly strength. It's often that the case that you can be as weak as David and you can slay Goliath. Not that we can do it in ourselves, but the Lord working through us can do that. And a weak church like this church in Philadelphia, when the Lord blesses it, it can do great things. We should pray for that as well. We should be patient and endure whatever we have to endure, trusting that the Lord sees all things, being faithful to him and knowing that he will reward, he will bless in due time. We might be weak, but in the Lord's strength we can do far more above all that we might be able to even ask or think. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, this is because of God's power at work in us. To him be glory, not just in Christ Jesus, but also in the church. Those are powerful words. 
And yet this is because it is the Lord who is sovereign. He is the one who opens and closes the doors. He is the one who has the keys to the kingdom. He is the key of David. That is a way of describing that he is the descendant, the heir to David's throne. He is the Messiah, the one whose kingdom will never end, as was promised of David. And it is he who opens and shuts doors. It doesn't matter if they've got opposition against them in a worldly sense, but with the Lord on their side, he will open doors and nobody can do anything about it. When he blesses, the blessing is secure. Today we don't have a local Jewish synagogue opposing us, but we might have others. There are many humanists and atheists who oppose the name of Jesus and who want to oppose Christian values and the gospel and Christian truths. They want to oppose the church. But the church of Jesus Christ will be standing long after, long after they are. The door that Christ opens for the gospel quietly works away, changing lives, transforming people, bringing hope where there was despair, bringing peace where there was conflict and turmoil, bringing love where there was hate, forgiveness where there was forgiveness needed. Those who oppose the gospel might appear to be more powerful from a worldly perspective at times, but they will not prevail. We shall overcome in the Lord. In the end, they will acknowledge that the church is vindicated, that Christ is vindicated, his people are vindicated because of him. In verse 9 we read, Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Some of them may bow down and become believers, but all of them one day will bow down before the Lord and acknowledge that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray that they will come and people will come and acknowledge he is Lord of Lords now. That they will make an out-of-court settlement before the day of judgment. That out-of-court settlement where the price is paid on the cross, where their sins are forgiven. And they receive that settlement through faith in Christ. Jesus also encourages the church that they will be eternally blessed. Don't look at your current situation. Don't look at the struggles that you've got now. Don't see everything in the light of the here and now. See everything in the light of God's promises. Stand on the promises of his word. Not how you feel, not how things appear. The Jews likely boasted about their temple in Jerusalem its impressive pillars, its its great significance, that, that second temple, Herod's temple, it was, so, it was so impressive from a worldly point of view. And yet the Lord says, all who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, 
And they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. The Jews were impressed by the bricks and mortar of the temple in Jerusalem. The magnificent pillars, the fact that Jerusalem was their city, even though they were far away from it in Philadelphia. Some of them would only rarely be able to visit there. They wouldn't spend long there. But Jesus says about his people that they will never have to leave it. His temple, his his city, his new dwelling. The Jews looked to the Jerusalem as the place where God, God's temple signified his presence and the, the city of Jerusalem not only signified God's presence, but also the people. The city signifies the people of God. And Jesus is saying, don't worry about Jerusalem. It's the new Jerusalem that is more important. In fact, the old temple and the old Jerusalem, these are symbols, these are types, these are shadows of the reality, which is God's people in God's presence, which is to come. When he says, I will also write on them my new name. That is a way of identifying them as his people. If you have the name of somebody, you belong to that person. One of the the lovely little things that Paul says in passing in Romans eight is that you know we have been adopted into as God's children. Adoption in the Roman world at that time was not simply a case of somebody being legally having the responsibility of somebody else. Uh, it didn't always happen at childbirth or just after a child had been born where maybe a mum couldn't care for their child and wasn't able to look after it and the child was given at maybe just days or weeks old to be adopted by another family. In the Roman world, adoption often happened to adults. If somebody was a slave or maybe the equivalent today of an, an employee... Sometimes the the employer the would be so impressed and have such a bond with their faithful servant that they wouldn't want them to remain just a servant any longer. They would adopt them into their family. They would become a son or a daughter to them. They would become part of their family. And the thing about Roman adoption was that it didn't matter if you had debts or even if you had criminal criminal charges against you, it doesn't matter what you had done or who you were or what your problems were. Once you became adopted, you were now treated as a new person. All those old things that you may have done, outstanding warrants for your arrest, the history of things that you could not walk away from yourself. When you became adopted into the family, you, you became a new person. Those things were gone. Forever. And that's what happens when we become adopted into God's family. 
when we have his name, whatever we have done in the past, whatever sins we have committed, they no longer belong to us. In fact, whatever sins we commit in our old nature still do not belong to us in our new identity in Christ. We are forgiven. When it comes to dealing with the past, which is a very sensitive and and difficult topic here in the North here, the Christian message has so much to offer. At an individual level, we can be forgiven. The things that we may have done in the past are forgiven when we come to Christ. And other people ought to recognize that. Other Christians ought to recognize that when we become new people, we are forgiven. And other Christians ought to recognize that we ought to be forgiving people. How should we deal with the past? Historical issues. Issues of justice. The one thing that's missing in the whole, with so many churches, with so many pastors and preachers in, in the north here, you would think that some of them would have been saying, we ought to forgive. We ought to have reconciliation based upon the model of Christ. We can forgive because God will ultimately give justice. We might not get it here and now, but we will get it there and then. We can forgive, we can move on, because justice will ultimately be done. Just because it doesn't happen here in the courts doesn't mean that we're not getting justice. And the best way to move on is not simply to see people get the punishment that they deserve. It is to see forgiveness. It is to see that their sins are forgiven on the cross. It is to see reconciliation in Christ. And for those who aren't reconciled, for those who don't turn from their sins, who won't be reconciled, we still forgive them anyway. If you have anything against anybody, if you're standing before your Father in prayer, and if you have anything against anybody, forgive them, that your Heavenly Father will hear your prayer. Mark 11.25 The Gospel isn't simply about forgiveness between us and God. It reconciles people together. It helps us move on instead of carrying a burden of unforgiveness. When we have Christ's name, the past is gone. We become new people. We have a new future. We have a a new now as well. The promise that they will have his name means that they are his people. The Jews may have been very proud that they were the people of God. They had his name. But in reality, they didn't. Only those who have trusted in Christ in their hearts, who have turned to him in faith, in repentance and faith, can claim his name. Sometimes we need to examine ourselves and think, Has each of us actually done that? Or are we just going along assuming that we are the people, we are the... When we haven't actually humbled ourselves in our hearts and turned to the Lord in repentance and faith.
He is the Holy One, the True One. He is the One who is perfectly holy, sinless. He is the one true God. And he is the one whose name we will be given as we patiently endure. In verse 10, we read, Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. We don't exactly know what this verse means. We can't be sure. Some people say it's, it's, it refers to a rapture of believers being spared the last evil days on earth. But there's no mention of, no specific mention of rapture in the book of Revelation. It's an interpretation. Instead, many, like Beal, the commentator, have concluded that this means the protection of believers. Bale writes, it's better to understand the phrase as a promise that in the final period of demonic assault upon the earth, believers will receive spiritual protection against the forces of evil. This is consistent with Jesus' words in John 17 verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. We don't know if this was going to be just a specific protection that was to this church or whether Jesus was speaking more globally here. But it certainly applies globally. And I would prefer not to read too much into things which aren't, we don't have enough warrant to do so. But what we do know is that Jesus promises protection. Jesus promises blessing to those who patiently endure. He promises the protection that we read here in verse 10. He will protect them to those who patiently endure. He promises to open a door for them who patiently endure. And these promises are not simply written to them. These promises are written to us as well, that we may learn this is how the Lord works with his people. This is how we can expect him to work with us as well. You've heard the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover. This church might appear, this church in Philadelphia might appear to be weak, insignificant, ineffectual. Not much is happening. They're just persevering. They're just enduring. They're not really doing much for the Lord. They're just being patient. But they are doing things for the Lord. I know your works, he said. They did not deny him. They've remained faithful to him. They're doing what they can. And he says, just like he says that those who are faithful in small things will be given greater things. He says, I'm opening a door for you. Maybe he's opening a door for you in terms of personal ministry. Maybe your faithfulness, which may have been frustrated at times, Your patient endurance will be rewarded with a door that that nobody can close. Maybe it's for us as a, a fellowship that as we patiently endure and seek to do what we can, even though we are small, that the Lord will open a door for us 
that no one can close. And when the Lord says he's opening a door, it almost seems, reading between the lines, it's going to be a wide door that he's going to open. Not simply just open an hour a little bit. When he says he's opening a door, it's going to be a good opening. Let's pray that the Lord would open doors for us, both personally and as a church, as a fellowship. But not only ourselves. Let's pray that God would open the door for his people, his church, that we would be able to have an impact. Might not make it in the headlines. It might not be very visible at a worldly level. But that we would have a big impact on people behind the scenes. To those who are faithful under enduring situations, when Christ opens a door for them, no one will be able to shut it. They will punch far above their weight. Let us strive to be faithful, to be patient, to endure under whatever situation we find ourselves in. And let's be encouraged that the Lord's love for us is engaged by the situation that we're in. Sometimes we have to endure difficult things, but the Lord loves us as we endure obediently and faithfully to him, and he showers blessings upon us each day. Let's strive to be faithful to him. Let's strive to be patient and endure. And let's look to him to open doors, knowing that as we look to him, as we take his name upon ourselves, that we can expect him to reward, to protect and to bless, not only in eternity, but here and now as well. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that that you've got all things in your hand. You're the sovereign Lord, that there is no situation that is outside of your control. And Lord, even though we might not understand how and why you allow certain things to happen at times, Lord, we don't know how you have to enable things to, to be such that we need to endure Lord, we simply want to be freed from the the difficulties of this life. But Lord, we know we will be one day. Help us to trust that you're in control. Help us to be obedient and faithful to you, to endure whatever you have allowed to come across our path. Help us to endure it patiently and faithfully. And help us, Lord, to look forward to the doors that you open for us doors for ministry, doors for the gospel. Lord, help us to be faithful and help us to be effective. And help us, Lord, to be joyful knowing that you are the one who is in control, that you eventually are going to bring all things under your feet. Help us, Lord. Help us not to go in our own strength, but to go in the strength of your spirit, not our own might. In Jesus' name, amen.